welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten. I'm the JNMP podcast editor, and I'm joined today by this month's editor's choice, Professor Alfonso Fasano from the Movement Disorder Centre in Toronto's Western Hospital, Ontario, Canada. And we're going to be discussing his recent paper in the JNMP looking at seizures and movement disorders. So welcome to the podcast, Alfonso. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When I first read the paper, and obviously to the untrained eye, I would have thought that movement disorders and seizures are relatively sort of separate neurological entities. Can you tell us a bit more about the overlapping and phenomenology between these two neurological conditions? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the division uh, between epilepsy and movement disorder, it's an artificial division, and, and I think um, m- most clinicians will, will agree with me. Clearly, there are seizures totally different from movement disorders. I'm talking about seizures where, with behavioral manifestation or seizures with uh, atonia or drop attacks. Those are different manifestations, obviously, of the same phenomenon called seizure. But very often, seizure can present with motor symptoms. And, and therefore, in theory, a seizure can present with a movement disorder uh, because these are uh, mutually exclusive entities because what defines seizures is actually a pathophysiological process. Instead, uh, when we talk about movement disorders, we're talking about what we see. So we're talking about phenomenology. And this is why I'm saying that in theory, a movement disorder can be caused by a seizure. Uh, so when it comes to the overlapping phenomenology, I think it's important to recognize that uh, these problems can coexist in the same person or sometimes that the diagnosis is challenging because doctors are concerned whether they're dealing with a seizure process or a mood disorder caused by another entity. And obviously this is an important distinction to make because this will guide the treatment, which is obviously very different. So tell us why um, you decided to conduct a review in this area. Obviously, you've just discussed about the differences and disentangling between the two at times. Um, So what information did you sort of aim to synthesize in your review? Yeah, this is um, an idea that I had a long time ago. Um, I I should say I'm I'm surrounded by very good clinicians and uh, very good experts in epilepsy. And this is not just in Toronto, but even back in the days where I used to work in Rome, in Italy. So I had a lot of discussions with my colleague, uh, and they were also interested in uh, movement disorders. And we recognized very soon that there was a lot of overlap that was actually interesting to discuss in a research space. But obviously, this is not just research. As I said already, this will be something very important to discuss also for uh, teaching purposes and uh, you know, ultimately for um, the treatment of patients. So eventually, we decided decided to, to put our thoughts together and uh, to start a project uh, with different uh, experts in the area of mood disorders and also an area on the epilepsy to try to synthesize what we know so far uh, in this area and now to sort of put things in an uh, order so that uh, readers and other clinicians could use our review to improve their practice and to help their patients. So your review covers quite a lot of areas um, with regards to this particular topic. One of the ones that I wanted to sort of ask you more about is about this notion of the risk of seizures in movement disorders. And if you could just tell us a bit more about that. 
Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So there are uh, different movement disorders. Probably the, the most common one is Parkinson's disease, and the one that most people uh, know very well. In Parkinson's disease, it's also recognized that seizures can be increased. But uh, if you look at the numbers, it's not a high risk of having seizure. And clinically, and from my clinical experience, I can say that it's very rare that someone with Parkinson's disease presents uh, with seizure. There might still be a reason why Parkinson's patients might have more seizure. And this is something I want to uh, discuss in more details because that will be also relevant to other conditions. And this is particularly the fact that these people are uh, using different drugs. As, as we know, seizure uh, as a very specific pathophysiological mechanism, and there's also a threshold for seizure. So in other words, anybody can have seizures. But when we're dealing with epilepsy, this threshold is lower, and, uh, and this is why we can see more and more seizures. Now, Parkinson's disease, there are uh, two different distinctions to make. The first one is that these people use drugs. Think about antidepressants or neuroleptics. Uh, these are all drugs that can reduce the uh, threshold for seizure. Uh, but the other important distinction to discuss is that Parkinson's disease itself is not a real entity. It's not one disease. There are many different genes, for instance, or environmental factors that can cause the disease. So my hope is that discussing seizure, even in a condition where you don't typically see seizures, we might in the future uh, subdivide people uh, in different subgroups. And perhaps seeing uh, that some Parkinson's patients may have seizure might be a hint towards a different type of genetic Parkinson's disease, just to make an example. So uh, I wanted to start from Parkinson's disease because that's a very common condition and most neurologists are very familiar with it. Uh, just to really touch upon these two points that I just made. Uh, one is the issue of comorbidities and, and drugs that we use, which also have an impact on, on seizure threshold. And the other one is the heterogeneity that uh, any disease we deal with us in itself. Then there are other movement disorders. And in these movement disorders, instead, seizures are very common uh, or relatively common uh, feature. And it's important to recognize this because this will certainly help the clinician in making the final diagnosis. As a rule of thumb, I can say that uh, most movement disorders don't have seizures. But when we see seizures in the context of movement disorders, we may think about two different scenarios. One is that uh, seizures are just coincidental. For instance, people might have two different problems or think about someone with a I don't know, dystonia or essential tremor, all conditions where you don't typically see seizures, but this same, the same person has a vascular malformations of a tumor. So that's also important to recognize because you might not simply say, okay, yes, they have seizures and that's normal in these populations. Actually, simply because it's not normal that you might want to explore other conditions that can be associated. Uh, but I was also saying that in some cases, uh, seizures is part of the clinical features uh, of condition. And this is why knowing about the seizures in certain type of disorders can be a guide towards a final diagnosis. Uh, for instance, there are conditions uh, where we have accumulation of iron in the brain or accumulation of uh, copper, like in Wilson's disease, or accumulation of calcium, like in FAR syndromes. Uh, so this is a simple rule of thumb to say that anytime there is something extra that um, gets accumulated in the brain that you can expect some seizures but it's not that simple this is just uh, as I said a rule of thumb but for instance if we look at what happens in conditions where you have uh, iron accumulation and I'm particularly talking about neurodegeneration with brain iron accumulation, NBIA, uh, not all these NBIAs can have seizures. And it's now recognized that certain genetic 
Forbes on MBAs can also have seizures. So uh, what I'm trying to get at is that, yes, you understand the disease, you see what people have, you diagnose them, and the presence of seizures might either indicate that something else is going on, or that seizure itself can be a hint towards the final diagnosis. Even uh, from a molecular standpoint, you can actually at some point say, this is an MBA, he has seizures, so given that, probably is this given mutation. The other side of the coin, of course, that you talk about in your paper is the risk of movement disorders in seizures, so thinking of it the other way around. Tell us a bit more about this and obviously this sort of comorbidity and, and how the risk is either increased or decreased in this, in this condition. Yes, so similarly to what I just said, even here you may have two different more or less scenarios. The first one is a situation where you have a movement disorder in someone with seizure because this particular uh, patient with seizure has been treated for a long time, for instance, with an anti-epileptic drug. Uh, that's a very important uh, part of, the, uh, of this review that we wanted to expand more and unfortunately uh, we could not and probably we're gonna write on it in the future, uh, which is the, the, the effect of drugs on movement. For example, valproic acid, Valproate is a very commonly prescribed anti-epileptic and is well known to cause tremor and also to cause Parkinsonism. So when you have a patient with seizure and you see a Parkinsonism, the first question that any clinician should, should ask uh, themselves is whether what you see is simply the side effect of medication. Another common situation are um, gabapentin or pregabalin or uh, uh, carbamazepine. These drugs very easily can cause myoclonus. Another example is phenytoin. Phenytoin is no longer a uh, uh, first-line agent, but it's still used in many countries because it's a relatively cheap drug. And phenytoin has been associated with um, lingual movements. Uh, so these are just few examples to say that uh, anti-epileptic drugs, and obviously most people with epilepsy have anti-epileptic medications, uh, they use anti-epileptic medications, uh, I was saying these drugs can cause movement disorders. The difference here is that uh, these people have an episodic problem, which is seizure, but they are taking these drugs on a regular basis every day. And this is when you may see a constant movement disorders, let's say tremor all the time. And physicians need to be aware of the complexity related to the effect of treatments because they might need to change drugs, not just to help patients, but also to understand whether that particular patient has a seizure and a primary movement disorder or the movement disorder is simply a side effect of the medications. Uh, I, as also mentioned before, in some cases you may simply have a coincidental occurrence of two different conditions. Uh, seizures is relatively common in the population and also movement disorders are common, so it makes sense that a given person might have two independent problems going on. And the third part, which is uh, probably the most important, especially with respect to the review we wrote, is that some seizures disorders, so epilepsy, can have a movement disorder as part of the spectrum, as part of the phenotype. And this is something I've been working in, in the uh, recent past with a colleague of mine, with Dr. Andrade, who is one of the authors of, of this uh, review. And for instance, we were able to recognize that uh, in certain uh, genetic forms of seizures, of epilepsy, we might expect a certain uh, movement disorders more often than a controlled population. And uh, we are now taking the next step here and trying to see whether looking at the motor phenotype of these patients might be uh, useful to uh, reach a final diagnosis of the epileptic syndrome itself. I want to give you an example. Uh, we uh, looked at people with Dravet syndrome, 
Dravet syndrome is a very dis disabling condition which is characterized certainly by seizure but also by uh, mental retardation and other motor problems. And in our um, research in the past, we showed that this, uh, these patients might present with Parkinsonism, which can be levodopa responsive in some cases, and more importantly, with specific postural abnormalities, uh, namely anticholis. So these people have a, a sort of a chin on chest phenomenon, or if you want, a head drop. Then we moved ahead and we said, okay, let's look at people with epilepsy coming to our clinic and, and, and let's see which ones uh, have uh, anticholis, for instance. And we found in a, another publication that uh, anticholis is actually quite specific of Dravet syndrome, which is for the most, uh, in most cases, caused by a mutation of the sodium, uh, of a sodium channel in the brain. Uh, and this is uh, the utility of recognizing movement disorders in these people, because now we know where we have an epileptic syndrome with an early onset associated with mental retardation, for instance, and we see anticholis, then we think that we are dealing with Dravet syndrome even before we do the genetic test. That's why it's useful to recognize that epileptic syndrome uh, might present with movement disorders. And they are very specific. Anticholis is not very common. We see anticholis in some very rare Parkinsonian patients and more commonly in another type of Parkinsonism called multiple system atrophy. So we don't see anticholis that often. That's why we're looking for very specific signs that can help the physicians in uh, diagnosing these, these patients with very rare sometimes and complex epileptic syndromes. Your review covers this enormous wealth of information and particularly the complexity, you really sort of elucidate on the complexity of this interplay between movement disorders and seizures. And of course, uh, you know, obviously the first question is how this could potentially help clinicians disentangle this sort of Gordian knot when faced with these sorts of problems in the clinic. Um, so your paper outlines a sort of proposed algorithm. So I wanted you to tell us a bit more about that to finish off the podcast about how this may facilitate the clinical diagnostic process. Yeah, we all like algorithms and those are just starting points. This is something that can start the process and guide clinicians towards further, towards further investigations, like I said before, genetic tests. But an algorithm is a good starting point, as I said, because we need to put things in order. We need to start from somewhere. In this algorithm, we are dealing with the diagnosis of seizure. And the seizure is something that can be diagnosed on a clinical basis. It's still a clinical diagnosis and is further supported by EEG abnormalities. We haven't discussed the, the role of the EEG in, in this particular context, and, and probably we won't have time to talk about it. But I still think that we need to make a brief mention of uh, another problem that are episodic movement disorders. Uh, like uh, paroxysmal dyskinesias. In these cases, you have episodic problems, but the EEG is normal. So we can typically call these seizures, but to some extent, from a pathophysiological standpoint, we may still say that these are seizures of the basal ganglia. But now let's move on and let's talk about the algorithm. In the, in the algorithm, as I said, we are assuming that the patient is having a, a seizure described with focal uh, group of neurons that are uh, firing at a certain frequency and causing some clinical effect. And in these cases, the diagnosis is made, as I said, uh, clinically, but it's also supported by EEG. So you have a patient with a seizure, and then you see additional movement disorders. 
and this is where what the algorithm is meant to address. The algorithm doesn't include movement disorders caused by drugs, as I mentioned before, but we are assuming the definition at this point is sure that the movement disorder accompanying the, the seizure is not caused by drugs. And in this algorithm, we discussed uh, uh, five uh, movement disorders in particular, dystonia, chorea, myoclonus, stereotypes, and Parkinsonism. And these are pretty easy to differentiate from each other. So if the doctor, again, diagnoses a patient with seizure and then sees one or more of this of this uh, movement disorders, then following the algorithm, he can uh, be guided towards a final diagnosis. And in this algorithm, we don't look just at the movement disorders that is, uh, that is associated with the seizure, but we're also looking at specific features. For instance, in dystonia, we're looking at onset of dystonia. It can be a childhood onset or a adulthood onset. In Korea, same story. In myoclonus, instead, we looked at the uh, MRI. We thought that uh, MRI, an abnormal MRI or a normal MRI uh, would be the best uh, predictor of certain other diseases. In stereotypes, same story. And in Parkinsonism, instead, we looked at the age at onset. So this is basically how the algorithm moved forward. For these conditions, we either looked at the age at onset or the uh, normal or abnormal MRI. And in some cases, we even combined these two subdomains. For instance, in Korea, uh, in the early onset, Korea associated with seizure, we differentiated further this group in people with normal and abnormal MRIs. And obviously, the algorithm is quite complex and lists uh, uh, dozens of conditions. And we, our goal wasn't to make sure that everybody knows everything about these conditions, some of which are quite rare, to be honest. But this is just a starting point, as I mentioned already. It's something just to raise awareness of the complexity and the overlap. But at the same time, that this is a fascinating field that has a very practical implication to diagnose people. Absolutely. It's a very um, comprehensive review with some really interesting findings, of course, from a clinical standpoint. Alfonso, thank you so much for joining me on the JNMP podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So that was Dr. Alfonso Fasano, who was talking about seizures and movement disorders, phenomenology, diagnostic challenges and therapeutic approaches. You can download the paper for free on jnmp.bmj.com. My name is Elizabeth Hyten. I am the JNMP podcast editor, and thank you all for listening.